Oh, hey, Morgan here. And in case you missed it, Hannah and I usually start every podcast recording session grabbing our afternoon coffee. If you're looking for a way to support the podcast, you can now fuel the podcast by buying us a coffee. No, really. There's a website called buymeacoffee.com. And all you have to add is a forward slash and we pod. That's buymeacoffee.com slash W-I-I-P-O-D. We love creating the pod. You love listening to the pod. Support the pod financially by buying us a coffee. Welcome to the Weight Inclusive Innovators Podcast. My name's Hannah Turnbull. And I'm Morgan Sinclair. We're two non-diet dietitians, entrepreneurs, and Enneagram 7s here to talk shop about the business side of things. From managing a team of clinicians to building a cohesive brand to figuring out how the heck to pay yourself, we get deep down in it talking about what it actually takes to start, run, and grow your weight inclusive business, the good and the messy. We know your degree didn't include any business classes, at least not any applicable to what you're doing now as an entrepreneur. This is why we are on a mission to bring business education to other weight inclusive clinicians. Say sayonara to all the hours spent on Google and hello to information that is actually relevant. Let's dive in to today's episode. Welcome back to the pod, you weight inclusive innovator you. Today, Hannah is taking the hot seat as she answers my questions about what it's like to market a group practice. But before we dive in, let's do a quick little check-in. We use this question as our weekly reflection in the accountability club this week, but we have it pinned as something to circle back to because it's brought up a little bit more uh, than we initially intended for it to. So what better time than to dive into it more on the pod? So Hannah, complete this statement. If the world was ending tomorrow, I'd regret. First of all, the concept of regret is so fascinating to me because I've always felt like I'm a person who flies by the seat of my pants, no regrets. I want to do everything, blah, 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 blah. And I listened to an episode of Brene Brown's podcast, Dare to Lead, which I know I shared in our accountability group Slack as well, who interviewed Dan Pink, who has done some research on the concept of regret. And the TLDR of that is people tend to regret things that they don't do more than they do. So what Dan Pink said really resonated with me and my philosophy on, I don't really regret a lot. I can fuck shit up and learn a lesson from a mistake and be okay with it. So more of my regrets are things that I'm afraid of not doing. And somebody in the accountability club posted something similar to this that I heavily related to of fearing time passing, being in the grind of your business and regretting not using that time for something else or being present in that time. And that like stabbed me in the chest and turned the sword a bit. So for me, if the world was ending tomorrow, I would regret not taking more space and time to just exist and actually planning out things I want to do outside of work. Like I will regret spending all of my time in the grind and for five years to fly by and me be like, holy shit. So I want to address that this year. And maybe that's part of my space. My word of the year is making sure that doesn't happen because in some ways, even though I think it was a really important part of building my practice and all the things I'm doing, I feel a little bit of that from my mid twenties of just missed out time. I don't regret it though. 
but I could see myself as I know myself more and I'm settling into who I am and what I want to do with my time and who I want to be in the world. I can see that settling in as a regret if I were to stay in that space for the next five years. Yeah, I can see that. I think there's something about kind of that, like right after college up until your thirties mindset, speaking as someone who hasn't hit 30 yet, that society just kind of is like, oh, that's your like grind period. Like that's where you have the freedom, the flexibility, the energy, the like all these things to be able to do that. And I definitely don't regret that either because I, I'm totally with you on that. And I know for a fact that that is not a sustainable way to live for the rest of my life. 1000%. It has an expiration date. I thought it was really interesting. The common themes, I'm not going to go into, to people's like two personally that shared their answers in the accountability club because wow, the vulnerability and like connectivity in that group just amazes me. And we're only in week two. (laughs) I can't even can't wait to see what comes out of it. But I did notice the common theme is a lot of people would regret working too much and not traveling enough. Mm, Same. Which I, I mean, I relate to, I think that that's a very normal thing that people would regret hindsight 2020. What do you think it is about travel that people are drawn to? Because they didn't say, and I also relate to that travel is one of my biggest values and wanting to see the world and different, have a different experiences and adventure. But I'm wondering what your thoughts are with why people didn't say working and not doing X or Y or Z. It's always travel, 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 travel. There is an allure to experience a different part of the world. I also think there's a tie And whether this is an appropriate tie or not, I don't know, but I think there's a tie in people's minds in our society between travel and success. Ooh. If I'm successful, then I will be able to travel. Success is one of those things that means something different for everyone. So obviously there is a financial component to being able to afford travel, but kind of going back to the grind thing. If you don't know what your clear definition of success looks like, how are you ever going to get to the, then I'll be able to travel. If I'm successful, then I'll be able to travel. Well, what does that success look like? And why is that the piece holding you back from traveling? What do you think? I actually have a different thought in that it makes sense to me that travel is associated with people's entrepreneurship journeys and what they want and maybe why they're doing what they're doing because entrepreneurship business is risk and adventure. And so is travel. It's putting yourself in an uncomfortable position, going to a country maybe you haven't been before or a state or a city or whatever, and wanting to have a different experience and being okay with unknowns. Mm. So that's kind of the similarity I see in, oh yeah, you're an entrepreneur. It makes sense. You want to travel. I totally agree with that too. I was talking to my therapist yesterday because I was stuck in this black and white headspace of, do I like to travel because it provides an escape or do I Mm. like to travel because I like that adventure risk-taking new being in a new place mentality. And she was like, as 
everything else in life, it's not that black and white. Sometimes I might travel to escape, but majority of the time I'm traveling to experience something new, take the risks that are very in alignment with what I would say most entrepreneurs probably experience. Is it so bad to want to escape? No. I told her and I was like, you know what? There's a lot of other ways that I could escape that are not good for my mental health. So (laughs) true. I'm going to escape. I feel like travel is a good way to, to escape. (laughs) I'm going to throw the question back to you now. If the world was ending tomorrow, I'd regret. So I'm going to agree with the whole travel thing. And if you listen to the intuitive budgeting episode, I will always regret not booking a plane ticket, especially whenever it is in relation to community, community and connection with friends. What has come up for me this week with this question? I actually didn't answer this question in Slack. So this is the first time that I'm sharing it. I noticed. Yeah, I know. I probably should have followed up and answered it, but that's okay. If the world was ending tomorrow, I'd regret not creating enough spaces for my community to connect. Hmm. Specifically when it comes to being able to host people. This was an intention that I set last year and I I'm still playing with the idea of it and and kind of sifting through it. I live in a very small space, 360 square feet. Majority of the time in Houston, Texas it is freaking hot outside. And so we can't really spend much time outside or keep doors open. I love to create these like intimate environments where I can invite friends over and connect, but there's just something in me where I'm like, people don't want to come over to my small space. It's so small. It's so stuffy. Like why should I host it whenever so many of my other friends have these bigger spaces? And Mm -hmm. I know that's like such a silly thing because One, my apartment's really cute. And two, they probably don't care that much. I'd regret not nurturing my community in the best possible way that I can. I think shoving a bunch of people in 360 square feet is very charming and cute. Like I would love (laughs) to be in that space. In my neighborhood, we have a group of friends that are connected through having dogs and we do progressive dinners, which means we go over to somebody's house for appetizers, somebody's for the entree and someone's house for dessert. And we switch it up like every month, every couple of months. And so I recently hosted the entree portion and I have 800 square feet and I crammed 20 people in here and it was so fun and intimate and Obviously I have more space than you, but still 20 people. And also the space that we were in was my living room nowhere else. So cut 800 square feet in half. It was 400 in my living room, 400 square feet, 20 people. It's fine. Everybody had what? 50 feet. Did I do that math? Right? No, I have no clue. (laughs) (laughs) You threw a math equation at me. My brain was not ready. Nope. It's 20 feet. Everybody has 20 feet. 20 square feet. Yep. 20 square feet. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, we made it work. I think I had, I think I had 12 people just in my living. Well, I live in a studio. There's no doors, but just in my like living space with my table. I think that's a really beautiful thing that you would regret. And maybe that will be part of your word and phrase of the year is somehow incorporating connection and gathering people together. 
Well, I'm going to start doing that for my 30th birthday party. I'm not doing it in my place because we're having a slumber party. And I think, I don't think I can sleep more than like four people. Oh my God. (laughs) Could you imagine we'd all be like stepping on each other, trying to go to the bathroom. It would be like Girl Scouts where we would just like lay blankets down or like (laughs) elementary sleepovers where you just like lay, like you make a big pallet on the floor and everyone. Anyway, I also think this is on my mind because my intentionality around my 30th birthday party is about community and connection. I'm not, you know, going out to a dinner. I'm not going out to the bars, which like, you know, maybe I will my actual birthday weekend, but I wanted to be really intentional about my party. I actually, did I tell you this? I think I told you this. Uh, Well, first and foremost, I don't know if I can say her name on the podcast, but we have a colleague friend who is starting a side business to make custom cocktails. And she's never, what? You told me and it's exciting. Carry on. Yes. I'm very excited about it. And so she approached me asking if I could kind of be like a a beta tester because she's never actually shipped things before. It's always just been within her like local communities. And so she's creating some custom cocktails for the birthday party. And that just like sent me into a tizzy of like, (laughs) what can I do for my birthday? So I asked one of my friend's boyfriends, who's a classically trained chef, if he would be our private chef for the evening and plan a menu and come over and cook for all of us. And he enthusiastically said yes. And I met with them earlier today and like finalized the menu. That's so awesome. What a great way to kick off that intentionality and for us to get to celebrate you. Yay. And have some bomb ass food. Oh my God. I'm so excited for the menu. So yes. So that's what I would regret. I, I, I would love to travel. If I could combine the two, I'd love to like travel with more people. I mean, that's essentially what you're doing with the eating expedition. That's true. You're right. You ready to dive in? Let's do it. Woo, I am so excited to talk to you about marketing strategies. You don't know this, but there was one random time on the podcast where you mentioned using Google ads for your group practice. And ever since then, all I've wanted to do is ask you more about your marketing strategies. So we finally got this on the schedule. And I'm excited for you to be in the hot seat this week. I love that your brain hyper fixated on that piece. Um, I'm excited to chat about it too. And I'm imagining people listening may not have a group practice yet or may just be focused on solo. And I think they're still going to get a lot out of this episode because you can take pieces of what I talk about today and utilize it for yourself. And I think a lot of marketing strategies won't surprise people. And I think people have a lot of questions about how the fuck do you bring in enough clients for 10 clinicians? Yeah. Well, and you know, that's where you're currently at, right? You're trying to fill the caseload of 10 clinicians, but you started by yourself. You've had to have marketed to get clinicians into the practice and continue to keep them full. So we're going to dive into all of the stages that you've been at owning a practice. My first question for you is what marketing strategies do you currently use marketing a 10 person group practice? So the first thing I want to name is my group practice has been around for over three and a half years, pretty close to four. 
And with that, we have built a really solid name for ourselves in the community. And I wanted to give the time frame for that because I think it's really important that if you've been a group practice for a year, or if you're starting solo practice, or you've been in solo practice for a year, it can take time to really establish the roots of your business. So want to normalize that you have to just keep being consistent and going. So with where my group practice is now, we are well-known in the community. We're a trusted referral source. So that's one of the things that is, I would say, active and passive. It's passive because we're top of mind for a lot of people, which is honestly a privilege and so lovely to think about the amount of people that refer to us and trust my team makes sense because they're fucking awesome. And it's also active because we're actively making a point to stay connected with people, check in about how things are going, send them a little reminder of us. And also my apprentice, Caitlin, is doing marketing and outreach to connect with new providers to try to get into different pockets that maybe aren't exactly the eating disorder space, but we know eating disorders still exist. So that's like the big referral network that people often refer to as a main source of marketing to get clients. Other things that we do, like you mentioned, is we use Google ads and Google ads is interesting to try to categorize because it's partially passive and it's active. So I actually have someone who manages my Google ads for me. And unfortunately he's not taking on any new clients. So there's no point in me linking him, but he basically does our strategy and posts our wording and SEO and all the things for Google ads. And Google ads is really similar functioning to a website in that it takes time to build the SEO. You have to think long game. You can set different budgets for your ads. And with that, not only does Google ads help our SEO for our website because it's connected, but Having invested in that the last two years, we get a ton of people that find us by search. And if you search Denver dietitians or Denver eating disorder dietitians, we'll probably be one of the first to pop up. So you can do a test run. Check that out if you want to, listeners. Um, And that means that they're doing exactly what they need to be doing. Another form of marketing that I would say is more passive is being on insurance panels. When we think about marketing for clinician services, as far as private practice, group practice, nutrition counseling, we have to think about what is the barrier that's going to stop people from accessing you? And the number one is always going to be money. By being an insurance provider, that's already removing one barrier from people being able to see you. And clinicians know that, clients know that. So whenever you're nurturing these referral sources and networking, the fact that you take insurance is automatically a marketing tactic for better or for worse, right? Because there could be clinicians who are network with insurance that are kind of shit and maybe they're fat phobic. Maybe they're not social justice informed. And the fact that they take insurance means that clients are probably going to go to them. That's really harmful. And so it's really important for us clinicians who are skilled and competent and take insurance that that is seen as a marketing tactic because, and it benefits you, right? Because you're doing the quote unquote good of the world and being an in-network provider. So not only is that marketing to your network, but it's also you get put on directories for better or for worse. Cause then you're going to have people who sneak through and they're like, I'm 90 years old and I 
need help with picking a supplement and that might not be your ideal client, right? But you could also find that person who has weight concerns. Maybe they're framing it in the form of, I want to lose weight. They hear about your philosophy. They check out your website and they're like, holy shit, I didn't know that was an option. I actually need that. Do you feel like there's any marketing tactics I might be missing? The only other one that you referenced but didn't directly name was having a website. Mm. We'll kind of tie that in with like Google ads, online presence. Awesome. And then you technically have an Instagram. I do. And I will say that my Instagram in the beginning brought in a few clients. However, I would say nowadays part of it's because I'm so spotty with Instagram. It's I don't find that it's a good marketing tool. I think it's fun to have an online presence and maybe that is marketing to your network if they're following you, but I really don't find it to be a great way to get clients to get revenue to the practice essentially. Yeah, I would agree with that. It's usually not a a, a great way. It's usually something more to do for fun or to have revenue streams that are not directly related to one-on-one client work. All right, I'm going to put you on the spot. We'll see if you know your KPIs as if you're not on the spot already. (laughs) (laughs) Out of these three marketing strategies, so we have one, referral and network, two, Google ads and website, three, insurance panels. What is the percentage split between those of people coming into your practice? Clients coming into your practice. I'm so glad you're asking this question because for the longest time, we didn't fucking track it. Mm. And starting in 2021, we did. And so the way that I do that is with a KPI dashboard. Basically, as referrals come in, everything streams in through primarily our email from our website. And then also sometimes phone calls. Our apprentice, Caitlin, will go through and log them on our dashboard that's in Google Sheets. I'm actually going to work on building out something better on a different platform this year. And I'm really excited because Google Sheets, Google Docs in general, I feel like it's just so messy sometimes and I have so much going on in there. So when it comes to the business management, I'm really working on pulling it out of the Google Drive and I'm going to try a different program. So can report back on that. But most importantly to name, we do track KPIs. We do track where our clients are coming from. It's really important to know that. And maybe that's one of the biggest differences between group practice and solo is when you need a higher demand of clients. So for my team with where we're at right now, we need at least 150, 200 clients to come through the practice per week. With that, it's important to know what's working and what's not in your networking and marketing. And that's going to give you information. And I'm going to call myself out a little bit because I don't exactly know what the quote unquote percent split is. But what I can tell you is referrals from providers. Interestingly enough, we don't know a lot of the providers that refer to us. So I'm imagining it's like a friend of a friend who our providers plug us, which is awesome. And then we have some that we really do know and work closely with. And Google is our number one source of clients for better or for worse, because when you have a direct referral, what we found is that those clients tend to be more dedicated versus someone who may find us on Google, the client conversion rate is lower. Do you have a rough estimate by chance? I would say 60, 40, 60% Google, 40% referrals. 
Are you lumping insurance panels into that too? Interestingly, Colorado is not a great directory space for insurance bringing in clients. However, I work with mm-hmm. business coaching clients in other states where it tends to be more normal to get referrals from directories. So that's just more kind of like a checkbox of like they find you through referrals or Google ads in your website and then see that you take insurance and that's why they take the next step. Exactly. Gotcha. That makes sense. Kind of focusing on referrals and network for a little bit. Do you have a strategy around continuing to nurture your warm audience of referrals and reach out to people that you don't know? Like, what does that process look like? Really awesome questions. I feel like, you know, inside my business and what we're working on Morgan, and I don't know how, (laughs) but Caitlin helps me with this a lot. Again, shout out to having an amazing apprentice who's super competent and goes above and beyond. And I, I keep mentioning that my apprentice helps me a lot whether you want to use the word apprentice, admin, um, these are the kind of things that you should be relying on your admin to help you with. You are the private practice owner, the group practice owner. You cannot do it all. And nurturing your network really takes a lot of time and energy and resources. And so what I like to do is sort of give direction and help implement the system. And sometimes I will be the person that reaches out, but Caitlin does a ton of it for us, which is great. So currently we have a spreadsheet. Again, we're actually looking into doing a CRM this year, a customer relations management. Is that? Yep. That's right. Nailed it. Obviously I'm still learning about them in order to really more accurately and cleanerly, for lack of a better word, look at how we're nurturing people and their interactions with us, et cetera. But right now we just use a sheet and we're tracking people who send us referrals. We add them to the sheet to manage and follow up with and be like, thank you for the referral. We're tracking outreach that we're doing. So Caitlin's doing a lot of reaching out to group practices that are therapists and reaching out to doctor's offices, telling them about our services and how we're in network with insurance and What we do with managing that network is we want to know how we can be helpful for them. And that's really important with marketing and getting known by people. It's not, hey, I'm here, give me clients. It's eating disorders is a major issue. We need a healthier relationship with food in our bodies. And how can we help these doctor's offices, these therapists, these other places that you're going to get clients, how can you help their staff understand this issue, train them in it and make it known the importance of our care. And so it's not about us, it's serving them and finding a problem to solve for them. So for example, we've done lunch and learns with doctor's offices. We've done activities in group practice meetings. We've put on webinars and education for different clinician types. There's so many things you can do in order to show your expertise, build a relationship with these folks, and also let them know how big of a problem eating disorders, disordered eating and dieting is. I love that. So uh, webinars, do you ever do any like flyers that you drop off at offices? Do you ever go out and do like coffee dates one-on-one with people? Do you have a system that you send 
periodic emails to referral sources, anything like that. Totally okay if you don't. Just throwing out some other things that I really loved doing when I was doing outreach for a treatment center. Like some of those things were my favorite. So I'm curious how they translate into group practice. I love those ideas. We have a flyer. We have brought it to school fairs. We've brought it to doctor's offices. When we go to do those presentations, we fax them a lot, but when we're trying to have the warm connection, because again, you're always going to get more referrals when somebody actually knows you ties your personality to your work and is like, you know what? This is a good human. Their team is awesome. I want to send them people. It's not enough to just do a flyer, but I think that's absolutely part of it. Um, as far as coffee dates, I used to do those a lot in the past. I just don't have the time now. And so I offer it up to my team. If they want to go on a coffee date with a therapist, um, my leadership team does that quite often, especially our FBT supervisor, who is really networking in the community, seeing what the need is and like making those important connections. And we also, we do that a lot with treatment centers, et cetera, but I leave that to my leadership team to do as part of their job because you can, like I said in the beginning, you can only do so much as the group practice owner when you're pulled in so many directions. And so lean on people in your business to help you. Out of all of these strategies that we've talked about so far, I've never had a group practice. You've pretty much nailed all of the recommendations that I would have for group practice. I'm still really intrigued about the Google ads and I want to, I want to, I'll jump back to that in a minute, but out of all of these marketing strategies, which of these has required the biggest learning curve for you? Ooh, marketing is such an interesting concept to me because it's not exchangey. And I talk about this with my business coaching clients all the time of, I told you about our services and now send me people. It's very much, you have to plant the seed, water the garden, nurture the soil, give them fertilizer, lots of fertilizer, and the fruits of your labor will pay off. And so the biggest learning curve, I think, is understanding that it's not an exchange and it takes a lot more work before efforts are paid off. And it should, right? It would be really strange for somebody to send you a shit ton of clients just because they heard about you. They really need to know you and what you're about and know what your work is. People want to trust you before they send people. And so I, I, I say it's a learning curve, even though it's not hard, but I think just learning how long it can take for marketing efforts to pay off would be my biggest learning curve. So if you've made it this far and you're like, yeah, love learning about this. I don't have a 10 person group practice. Now's your time to listen up. What have been the differences between marketing yourself as a solo practice versus when you just had maybe like three or four clinicians up to now? What marketing strategies have you added? What marketing strategies have gone away because you now have either more financial resources, more people to go out and provide these lunch and learns, things like that? That's such a good question. What I hear you asking is the transformation between being a solo practitioner to a small group practice to a medium, which is where I would say that we are now. We're hopefully going to be at the lower end of a large group practice by the end of the year. We're hoping to hire four more dietitians and have our total to 13. And I would say above 10 is probably a large quote unquote group practice, especially for dietitians. Let's start with, so let's start with going from solo to group because 
marketing yourself versus marketing someone else is way different. It's super different. So what I always tell people is you only need when you're solo, a handful of really solid referrals, because in reality, you can only see 20 to 25 clients a week. 25 would be really pushing it. And I know some solo people who see above 30 and that is cuckoo bananas. I don't know how you do that. But in reality, let's just use 20 as a average a number. round number. Sure. Yes. So if you only need 20 clients a week, you really don't need that many referrals. Let's say you need 40 clients to come through total, guessing that half of them will book. Awesome. If you have three to four solid referral sources, whether it's a group practice that's different than your discipline, or you have doctors that you work really close with, there's no problem in finding that handful of people to keep you full. It's much easier when you're a solo person to find time to go to the once a month IADEP event and network and sell yourself. You know yourself, you know your work that you can do, and you can give live examples of clients that you've worked with to show your expertise or say, oh man, you know, I'm really struggling to find a therapist to work on a case with me with this complex client. Here's what's going on. Here's what I'm doing. And being able to speak to your experience treating clients is going to help market you as the clinician and people are going to hear your passion in speaking about it. That's pretty much the bread and butter for solo practitioner. When you go to, let's even say adding one employee, the dynamic completely shifts because likely if you started with your business name as your name. So for example, my practice was nourished with Hannah. That got real awkward whenever I was hiring people because it was nourished with Hannah and this person and this person. And that's where we ultimately rebranded to nourish Colorado. People are going to come through your practice and request to work with you still, even though you're busted at the seams and you have a new clinician who, you know, is competent and awesome. And they're under you for supervision. People are still going to ask for you. So how are you going to shift your marketing efforts? Let your community know I have this awesome employee that works with me who specializes in this or is awesome for these reasons? And how are you going to shift when the community thinks about your practice to now think of you as a group instead of you as a solo person? And that transition takes time. And not only are you going to want to top yourself up with clients as needed. And again, there will be a point where you actually need to decrease your client load as you add more employees, but you're also going to need to fill up your employee. And chances are group practice is a learning curve treating eating disorders is a learning curve, you're probably going to burn through more people with your employee than you would, especially if they have less experience than you. That's really normal. But you need to account for that as you're doing marketing, as you're thinking about how many clients need to come through the practice, as you put into place however much you can to mitigate the risk of clients not getting the excellent care that you can provide. That's okay. That's going to happen. But how can you empower your employee and give them the experience and the chance to get clients booked and take good care of them? They're not going to be able to do the work you do to the extent you do if you don't give them the chance, but you're going to burn through people. Would you say whenever you're kind of making that shift into a small group practice, is it kind of equal parts you letting people know you added someone to your team and that team member going out and doing their own networking? Or what does that split 
look like in terms of referrals and building network? I think when you're adding that first one to two employees, and again, this is about hiring the right people and people who want to be in the community. I do think it's helpful for them to show their face and for people to get to connect with them directly. I don't think that's as important when you get to a larger group practice, because hopefully you're more established and people know, oh yeah, I can send my client over to this team and any clinician could do an awesome job with them. And so you're more seen as an entity versus here's these two clinicians. Hannah's awesome for this. Employee number one is awesome for this. It separates you as an individual more out from your practice, which I think is really awesome because that helps with boundaries. That helps with you feeling more legit as an organization. And it takes the individualism away in a really good way of I'm no longer the best clinician for treating clients. I would argue that my team is way better than me as a clinician, just with how my role has changed. Yep. Another thing that I usually recommend, especially if you were trying to fill up another team's caseload is swapping the order of your team members listed on your website to where the person that has the availability is the first person they see on your team page. And the one without availability is out is down at the bottom. And if it's you, the group practice owner who is not taking on any new clients, you can put not accepting new clients as well, which will help set a boundary of don't even request me. I'm not taking new clients. Absolutely. So at what point in small group practice moving into where you are now, did you start paying for Google ads? I have been paying for Google ads probably at least two years at this point. I don't think that I did that until I had maybe three or four clinicians and I would pay, I paid less at that time than I do now. So now with Google ads, I pay about a thousand dollars a month. Plus I pay $300 for my Google ads to be managed. So we're paying about $1,300 a month to advertise on Google that we provide eating disorder, nutrition counseling, that we take Cigna, Aetna United, that we can help you with your relationship with food. And it is quite a big expense. So I definitely do think it's warranted whenever you have four or more people to fill up, because at that point, you know, if your team needs to see 22, 23 clients a week and you have five of them, that's almost a hundred clients plan for some turnover. You need a pretty steady flow of clients coming into the practice. And how do you find a clinician? Typically, if you don't have a referral, you're going to Google it. Google. Do you choose the SEO keywords that go on there? Or is that something that your manager like, you know, poked through your website and pulled out keywords? It was a little bit of both. So I've been working with my Google ads manager for over two years now. So we've got a pretty good system. We don't talk about it as much as we used to of like, use these keywords X, Y, Z. And he's kind of tracking what's bringing the most traction to the website and to the Google ads. And then we'll give me feedback from there. But we've had a pretty good system with a steady flow for nine months now where we haven't had to tweak a lot. And sometimes if everybody's full and we're not in the process of hiring somebody, we'll actually turn down our Google ads. You can set a budget daily for how much you're willing to spend. And so you can tweak that anytime that you want. 
does he track that through Google analytics of what they search and then what they were searching to click through to your website? Yep. Yep. All of that is tracked. And so he can see what people searched, how they ended up on our website, the keywords pulled. We also do negative keywords. So if somebody is searching bariatric surgery, dietitian, we're not going to pop up because we don't offer those services. Um, sometimes I wonder about that because as we know, people who have different lived experiences and want different things, one can have body autonomy and two would still probably benefit from weight inclusive care. However, we're really trying to serve the eating disorder community. And so that's primarily where our Google ads are targeted. Amazing. Thank you for sharing all of that insight. I think Google ads is something that I have always associated with large corporations, startup space, and not necessarily private practices or group practices. And so the fact that you use Google ads especially because it is so tied to website, SEO, all of that is really insightful. Google ads, I feel like are like constantly changing. No, they are. They are. Okay. Yeah. I was like, I feel like that's one thing that it's just like the technology continues to astound me of the algorithm that it has in order to deliver results. I'm very impressed by it. It makes sense that your experience of seeing Google ads is associated with or corporations. Because if you search something right now, if you searched car wash, you're going to see the big corporations that provide car washes pop up first. Mm -hmm. And that's because they have more resources. They have more power. You know, they have people working on their Google ads. They're going to be able to show up first on the search engine. Um, And that's why you have to kind of decide when does it make sense for me to spend this money? knowing you're going to have to spend a good amount of money in order for the the wheels to turn for you to get up in the rankings. And Mm -hmm. what is the return on investment here, which is part of why tracking your KPIs, seeing where your clients come from is really important. You mentioned that you spend around $1,300 a month now. Do you remember what you were spending whenever you first started doing Google ads, whenever it probably wasn't as robust as it is now? Mm, no, but I can imagine probably somewhere between 250 and 500. Okay. So a couple hundred dollars is a good estimate to start out with. Yeah. And then over time, I kept tweaking it like, let's ramp it up. Let's ramp it mm-hmm. up. I have another thought associated with Google, but not associated with Google ads that can be marketing for people, which is Google reviews. I want to intentionally talk about this because... We've probably mentioned this on the past episode. It's been a while, but Google reviews can be used for marketing and to increase your place in the ranking on Google. However, do not have clients do this. That is a HIPAA violation. Have your colleagues who can speak to your work and on your behalf, leave you reviews. The more reviews you have, the more it's going to push you up in the rankings. P.S. Speaking of that, you can leave us a review on the podcast to help us move up in the rankings. That's how it works across the platforms. You can totally utilize that as a tool for marketing. So important to mention, yes, HIPAA violation. Do not let your clients leave you reviews on Google. If they do it unprompted, fine. But I see a lot of people, I don't mean to call you out. It's because I care. Within their email signature, it'll say, leave us a Google review. And you're setting yourself up for a lawsuit. Please don't do that. My last question I have for you is 
over the course of marketing a solo and a group practice, have there been any marketing strategies that were total flops? Oh, wow. Good question. I would say, as we alluded to earlier, Instagram, I don't think Instagram is a good way to bring in private practice or group practice clients. You may be able to get one or two, but the amount of work that you have to put in for the algorithm being consistent, the juice ain't worth the squeeze to me. Instagram is a fun tool for awareness. It is not a selling point. In my opinion, I would say another flop is passively, and that might not be the right word, but emailing people and just being like, Hey, I'm taking new clients or, Hey, I have this associate who's taking new clients. I think that can be a flop because like I said, warm leads are important. People knowing your clinician or you having a really awesome reputation, which takes time is the way that you're going to get referrals. So thinking if I send this email, I will get referrals is a flop. And I would also say that just calling places and dropping off flyers can also be a flop because again, it's not enough engagement for somebody to keep you top of mind and to be sending referrals to you. Because think about One, post-pandemic, how burnt the fuck out everybody is. The last thing they're going to do is go above and beyond to help you and get their clients to you, even if you can be so helpful to their clients. And then I think about doctor's offices who are seeing 30 fucking clients a day who are booked back to back. How are they going to remember to keep you top of mind? And in that situation too, it's probably better to talk to the office manager or the referral coordinator rather than the doctors or the doctor's nurse assistant. Absolutely. I don't know if that's the correct name for them, but I think it's medical assistant, medical assistant. Mm -hmm. They're usually a nurse. They're usually the ones that spend more time with the clients. Maybe it's just the nurse then potentially. I'm trying to remember what they call them. There's been a handful of times where I've called doctor's offices and like each doctor has like a nurse assigned to them in that group practice. And they're usually way easier to get a hold of than that. If anyone knows the name, let us know. Anything else you want to share about marketing a group practice before we close up? I just want to name the same fear that everyone has when they hire their first employee or their 10th employee, even if they've had the experience of seeing themselves fill up or three or five or seven other clinicians. Anytime there's a new employee, people are always like, how the fuck am I going to fill this person up? Even if they have the data and the experience of they filled up five other people. And I just, I giggle because one, I have that same thing still happen to this day. It's actually been less frequent recently, which has felt nice because we are getting so many referrals. And again, three and a half, four years established in a group practice at this point, it takes time to get there. But every time that feeling comes up, that is normal. That is okay. And don't let it keep you stuck because the best thing you can do, if you're feeling, how am I going to fill up somebody? That means you need to take action, implement a marketing plan, take your resources, whether it's time, energy, finances, whatever you have the most of, use that as a force to propel you forward to get more clients into your practice. Thanks for listening to the Weight Inclusive Innovators podcast. If you like what you hear, go ahead and subscribe to the pod on Apple, iTunes, Spotify, or wherever you listen to your podcast. Please leave a rating and review, share with your business bestie, and check out our website at weightinclusiveinnovators.com. See you next week.